0: Welcome to Community Union's Education Podcast with Martin and Rob.
1: In this episode, we look at the teacher's pension consultation. What is it and how can you get involved? And we update you on the teacher pay process. We look at contracts and teaching outside your speciality in your working life. And we bust some resignation date myths. Hello, and welcome
0: to the education podcast for April. Thanks as always for listening and subscribing. And before I even get started, let me just say, please do let your colleagues know and share widely. Leave us reviews and everything else. uh, Like us and subscribe on the platform you use. Martin, sorry, I wasn't with you last last uh, month, but you held the fort down admirably. I thought it's nice to have you back. Thank you. So yeah, this this month. Um, As you just said, we're looking first of all at the teacher's pension scheme consultation. Now I know that won't interest absolutely everybody who might be listening, uh, but it is really important and it is what's going on at the moment, hence why it's in our here and now section. So what is it and how can people get involved?
1: For teachers who are employed and working in maintained schools and academies, it's highly likely that you will contribute a part of your salary every month to the teacher's pension scheme. And this is a brilliant scheme that will ensure that you are looked after when you come to retirement. There have been a couple of changes recently. There were um, a number of unintended consequences when the scheme moved from the old scheme, which was the final salary scheme, and into the newer career average scheme that only really affects those who have got service in both of them. And this is as a result of some equalities issues which disadvantaged the younger people that have still got service in both schemes. This looks at how to Remedy that and make sure that there are no equalities issues and disadvantages going forward. So the government have published a consultation. It's currently live. It runs until the beginning of June, the 4th of June, I think. And uh, we will obviously be submitting a formal official response from Community Union. So if you would like to get involved in this consultation, you can email us directly and we will include your thoughts in our response. You can email us on policy at community-tu.org. Or, of course, if you Google TPS Transitional Protection Consultation, uh, you'll find it on the government website and you'll be able to make your own response.
0: So, yeah, a bit of a mouthful that. But once again, for anybody uh, who wants to get involved, you can either email us and contribute to our response and email us at educationpolicy at community or if you just want to do, it, you could do both if you want. But if you want to do your own uh, response, you can do. And the easiest way we think to do that is by googling or searching on some other search engine. All the search
1: engines are available.
0: <laughs> TPS Transitional Protection Consultation. Okay, so teacher pay, Martin, uh, everyone's favourite subject. Now, as far as I understand it, you have submitted our primary evidence um, and even some uh, oral evidence for the teacher pay uh, consultation.
1: That's right. So the way the teacher pay process works is that the Independent School Teachers Review Body gather evidence. Over the spring this year, we've been submitting our evidence, primary evidence in March, additional supplementary evidence just before Easter, and last week uh, gave our oral evidence to the review body directly. And the things that we're calling for are the things that our members would expect us to call for. We want fair funding for schools to cover the costs of operating them. We're aware that there have been huge cuts to support services that have meant that schools have had to fill in a number of the gaps themselves and there have been increased energy costs, food costs for school lunches and all sorts of additional costs which couldn't have been foreseen before the pandemic. So the primary thing that we want is for the government to fund schools properly. Get that right and then all of the systems are in place. We also think that the the workload of teachers is too high, the workload of support staff is too high and so if there is funding to fill those additional roles, those um, support services. We think that that would also have a positive impact on reducing workload.
0: Yeah. So as you say, it's not just about teacher pay. Is it? There's a little bit more to it than that. And workload is something that's been being addressed. One of the things that we have asked for, uh, not just this year, but at least last year as well. And you can perhaps tell us how many more years before that is an increased PPA
1: time, isn't it? Increasing PPA time, which is currently ten percent to twenty percent, would mean teachers delivering fewer lessons each week. This is a model similar to what is happening in other high performing countries where teachers spend less time directly working with pupils and spend more time planning working together with uh, other teachers on uh, resource preparation and that sort of thing. There is evidence Teach First argues that this would give teachers more time to spend on planning and professional development and it would ensure that lessons are properly outlined for the pupils and it could also allow teachers to use that time to do small group tutorial work such as happens in countries like Japan for example. It would also lead to improved teacher well-being, which could improve teacher retention. And this has been observed at Noel Baker School in Derby, just around the corner from our office. And it could lead to greater classroom stability as well, because we know that if teachers are likely to be present more of the time, they're likely to remain in post for longer, and that's likely to improve behaviour and results Of those classes and it also reduces the costs of supply staff for the school. So is the only
0: downside here presumably that with increased PPA means you need to employ more teachers is that the only reason the government won't do it because otherwise it sounds like a no-brainer?
1: That is absolutely it we know that if you were to increase PPA time to 20% that would mean every full-time teacher would have one day a week where they were not teaching pupils directly that would mean that schools would need to increase their staffing. And whilst this also would cost more money, we also know that there is a shortage of teachers at the moment, which would make it more difficult to fill any vacant positions. We're still passionate about the idea of increasing PPA time to 20% now, because we know that it can have a positive impact. There is evidence to show that. And we also know that early career teachers benefit from 20% PPA time, and it is helping them in their retention and professional development too.
0: Uh, This is going to be an opinion question rather than a fact-based question, Martin, but do you think that um, some teachers who've left the profession might be tempted to come back again if they thought you know there's an increase in ppa time you know i know by saying one day a week doesn't sound very much when you really think about it you know it seems obvious to me that teachers ought to have more non-contact time and in doing so they'll be less tired and better able to prepare it seems no-brainer to me like do
1: you think more teachers would come back to the profession i think there are many reasons why people leave teaching i think workload is a significant one but i also think school culture is another one Uh, And and that's linked to accountability, to things like performance management and performance related pay. And, of course, to Ofsted, which has been very, very heavily featured in the news recently.
0: Well, carrying on on uh, pay, what about um, the last thing I think that we uh, had in our submission was about decoupling pay from performance. What exactly does that mean?
1: At the moment, the government requires maintained schools to undertake performance management of their staff and for this to inform decisions on pay increases. Many multi-academy trusts are now moving to a model of performance management that is totally separate from pay. Essentially, if you're performing well and meeting your expectations, you will progress up the pay scale. And actually, for many multi-academy trusts, this is a cheaper way of doing things because the whole performance management process where you have to hold target setting meetings, then you have to do observations, which then have to be quality assured. You then have to have a review meeting and notes have to be taken. And that is a very expensive process process because it's so time-consuming. And there's no international evidence to show that this leads to improvements of pupil performance in education settings. We are very much in favour of decoupling pay from performance, separating pay and performance. We still believe that performance management has a place in schools, but that it should not be an integral part of the pay process.
0: So we've done the primary evidence that was submitted at the beginning of March, supplementary evidence that was submitted just before Easter, and you've also been to London and given oral evidence last week So when is this expected to sort of end this process?
1: Teacher pay process will now go into the reporting stage. This is where the school teachers review body will look at all the evidence that they have amassed and produce a report with a recommendation. That recommendation will go to the secretary of state and they will consider it and will make an announcement towards the end of the summer term. So sometime in June or July, we're hoping that uh, this will be in June, which will uh, be earlier than in previous years. We still think that a report in June is too late for schools to have sufficient time to implement this for September, um, but we are aware that this is earlier than it has been in many previous years. Okay, final question then before we move on. If people want to go and see our submissions, where can they go and find that? So our submissions are available on the community website just head to the education page and look for our policy work and there's a section there called teacher pay 2023
0: moving on then to your working life and this month we're looking at teaching outside your speciality now the reason we're looking at that this month is because what we're seeing is teacher numbers decrease in schools And so teachers who don't normally teach a subject having to pick it up. This is something I had loads of experience with because, as I have mentioned before, I was a media studies teacher and you don't tend to fill a timetable uh, with media studies or film studies or anything else sort of related to it. So I taught English, geography, PE, drama, all sorts of things as well. And I'm not an expert in quite a few of those. So it is something that's important to a lot of our members.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Rob. We know that school teachers play an important role in our society, especially for their students. And we know that quality education requires quality teachers. So we need our teachers to be qualified in the subjects that they teach to possess a broad knowledge in that content. And according to a 2021 20, study, highly qualified teachers may actually become highly unqualified if they are assigned to teach subjects for which they themselves have little training or education, and that this can negatively impact students' achievements. So it's in a school's interests to employ as many specialists as they can. The thing that
0: most teachers are probably asked to teach outside of their area of expertise is sex education and PSHE, uh, citizenship, I've known it for two uh just form tutors, that could be any kind of teacher, to science teachers, humanities teachers. Uh, so it falls to kind of lots of different kinds of teachers in schools often. There's been a lot in the press recently about sex education. Now, we don't intend to necessarily open a can of worms here, but... Uh,
1: it's important, isn't it, that teachers are supported, trained and, and properly resourced to deliver these lessons? Yeah, absolutely. It's reasonable for anyone teaching any subject, but particularly because we're talking about relationships, sex education, citizenship, it's reasonable for them to expect to attend training courses, particularly if they're teaching for the first time, and to be given time to understand the demands of the course. And this is especially the case if they're also leading on the subject. We know that there are published resources out there but some of these published resources can be quite expensive. Certainly they can be of questionable quality and the government has been alerted to some which seem to push a particular agenda. Now like we said we don't intend to open this particular can of worms at the moment but schools are wise to share the broad content of the curriculum with parents. It is important to point out and to make absolutely clear, though, that parents do not have the right of veto. So if a school decides it is teaching a certain thing, that is for the school to decide and parents do not have the right of veto. They do have the right to withdraw pupils from certain aspects of sex education, but they do not have the right to veto the subject completely for all pupils.
0: Now, one of the other things that teachers often get asked to uh, deliver is tutor time. Now, obviously, tutor time can be a pretty good idea, and one of the things that often gets delivered now in tutor time is this idea of British values that uh, a recent previous Conservative government introduced, um, and that you know is something that new teachers can often learn along with their pupils uh, in those things. So, that's often a good thing. Um, An experienced teacher can guide. Older pupils through college applications, uh, university applications, UCAS applications for sixth formers, and so on. So it's quite a good idea, but but again, Martin, do you think teachers need guidance and advice on 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 tutor time and how to go
1: about it? Absolutely. I think it's vital that teachers have some guidance, support, and training, even if it's just as simple as what they are supposed to be doing during tutor time. Tutor time has the potential to be a very important and useful period of time, but There are risks if that time is not properly structured because that's when we know that teachers then start to experience behavioural difficulties. I think the best use of tutor time is where there is support and training for the teachers and maybe some sort of programme that they are expected to deliver. It's important to note, though, that support staff should not be asked to be tutors. They can attend tutor time along with teachers, but they shouldn't be asked to be tutors because legally they cannot be solely responsible for a class and non-teaching staff, those who perhaps work in administrative roles or don't work directly with children, there is no expectation that they are involved in tutor time. They are not trained and there is a risk that they may not be insured if something was to happen.
0: Now, the obvious people here are uh, a teaching assistant, someone who's in the classroom often, uh, a non-teaching support staff, administrative staff like the ones you refer to. You know, let's say uh, school bursars. Yeah. Uh, receptionists, that sort of thing. There is a bit of a grey area we found recently, isn't there, with science technicians, because Are
1: they in the class supporting students or are they non-student facing? It's a difficult one. Technically, a science technician, a bit like a sports technician, their role is to provide the technical support for the delivery of lessons. They're not technically supposed to deliver directly to pupils, but they are supposed to ensure that resources are available in the correct locations when the teacher needs to use them. So their role is uh, to support the teaching and learning, but is not technically directly pupil-facing.
0: Right, moving on then, Martin, to probably the most asked question we get on this subject. Can they make me teach it? You know, so we get people ring up, I'm a food technology teacher and they want me to teach electronics, but I don't feel comfortable doing that because I'm not an expert.
1: What's our advice when people ring up and say that? Most teacher contracts will contain the clause and any other reasonable request. It's not just teacher contracts for that matter, most contracts will contain a clause expecting you to fulfil reasonable requests. And the school teachers paying conditions document explains that a teacher may be required to plan and teach lessons to the classes they are assigned to teach within the context of the school's plan, curriculum and schemes of work and to supervise, and so far as is practical, teach any pupils where the person timetable to take the class is not available to do so. So, in theory, both of those things, reasonable request and the school teacher's paying conditions document, seem to suggest that you can be deployed to teach lessons out of your subject specialism. It's important to note, though, that if this was for a significant period of time and you didn't feel confident enough with teaching outside your specialism, we would recommend that you have some sort of informal conversation with your line manager or head teacher and make them aware of it. And that you should also request any training or CPD to support you in delivering and developing your subject knowledge if you there was no alternative. Support should always be available for curriculum mapping, design, and you should always be uh, helped with lesson planning in subjects that you are not 100% confident in. But you should not be expected to teach other people's planning because our belief as community union is that this removes professionalism from the teacher. It also dilutes the personalization for pupils and it might fail to meet SEND requirements.
0: Yeah, so I have specific experience of this. I mentioned earlier on that I taught a bit of geography and uh, I had the um, fantastic lessons shared with me by the head of geography, uh, but I did of course go through those lessons and make sure that I was able to uh, to alter them and to plan specifically for my class now, I know you're going to come on to the idea of um, the level of the class here, but I think that was that was helped by the fact that uh, it was a pretty um, middle ability class. So I wasn't being asked to stretch the higher ability at one end or really scaffold and support the less able students in that subject. Uh, so that was really helpful as well. So, so the level of the class is relevant, isn't it?
1: The level of the class absolutely does play a role, as indeed does the amount of time that you are um expected to be to be covering for. So is this a, a, a short term cover, or is this something which has been timetabled in to fill your timetable for the rest of the year? Level of class is relevant as indeed is behaviour because as we've mentioned, if you are teaching a subject that you are less familiar with then there is a greater risk that you are not going to be fully engaged with the subject and that's likely to switch off some students which could lead to behavioural difficulties. Now we know that experienced teachers working in their own subjects have an array of classroom management techniques. They're familiar with the room. You may be in a different room and therefore there may be different expectations, particularly in specialist rooms like science laboratories, for example. You also need to be aware of the hierarchy in that subject or department. So what happens? Can you send a pupil out? Is there a subject leader that you can send someone to if they need specific information, advice? And can you call on colleagues for support? It's important that you know that you're not alone and that you should be able to do all of those things, but you will need to check and make sure what the arrangements are in the specific subject that you are delivering. So what about training then? Um, Now, obviously there's a question here about covering a lesson on a short-term
0: basis versus a long-term basis. So first of all, what would you say is a short-term basis?
1: One-offs are obviously short-term. And whilst the School Teachers pay and Conditions document makes clear that teachers should not be engaging in rarely cover, there will be emergency times when you just have to step in and help out. Covering for a long-term is different, and we would expect training That might just be internal training, but we would expect training to take place. Opportunities to observe colleagues, maybe to visit other schools, formal training and working with subject associations. All of those things could constitute training and depending on the length of time that you're going to be delivering this subject might be appropriate.
0: Okay, Can I chuck in a little bit of a spanner into the works here? What if you're being asked to teach a subject where there is no subject specialist in the school? This
1: is where schools working together and collaborating is really, really important. And this used to happen in local authorities. There would be a local authority subject advisor, and is starting to emerge in multi-academy trusts where there is more likely to be a subject specialist across various different schools. And we would recommend wherever possible that you seek advice from someone who is delivering that subject, someone who is a subject specialist within the family of schools that you work, if at all possible.
0: Now, moving on to one of the most important bits of this here, I think, because when we get phone calls about this sort of thing, we often get asked two things. One is... And they make me? Which is at the start, you know, we, we mentioned that earlier on. And the other is about whether it can be used towards their performance management review, you know, delivering a lesson outside of your speciality, particularly if it's a short term thing, a single term, a couple of terms, there's not been much training. How would we advise members on um, on the issue of performance management and teaching outside your subject specialism?
1: One of the things that the 2021 study found was that teaching outside of your subject puts extra strain on school staffing management and jeopardises teaching and quality learning. It lowers the quality of instruction and affects students achievement and in addition the teacher feels difficulty in bringing the subject alive for students due to their own limited knowledge. Teaching outside of the area of specialism can also disrupt teachers development and might lead to them exiting the profession so you know, fewer teachers lead to even fewer teachers. And as you mentioned, we do have concerns that teachers might be judged and inspected unfairly for lesson delivery in subjects that are outside of their specialism. But as we've mentioned, yes, schools can require them to do this. And yes, training, support and resourcing should be available to ensure that the likelihood of you being judged unfairly is reduced. But if you are observed and criticised for teaching a subject out of your subject area for issues that are outside of your control, then do get in touch with us and we will be able to offer you casework support.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And last then, but absolutely uh, by no means least on this subject, what about safety? Clearly, if you're asked to go and teach chemistry, or uh, food tech, or PE, or any other kind of technology that involves big machines you're not trained to use, there's going to be a safety
1: issue there, isn't there? Remember at the beginning, we said that uh, your contract is likely to say and any other reasonable request. If you are asked to do anything that is unreasonable, which would include using equipment that you're not trained to deliver, or it could involve things like uh, doing certain activities in PE, Or working um, in a science laboratory with equipment that you are unfamiliar with, the answer has to be no. The answer has to be no because if an incident was to occur, you as the teacher could still be held responsible and you might not be covered under insurance if you are not competent and trained to use that equipment safely. So the answer there has to be no because what is being asked of you is unreasonable. Right, I think that's that then on that subject. All right, and finally then,
0: uh, the return of Mythbusters. Boom! Okay, my question for you this month, Martin, is, and I want you to think here about both teachers and non-teaching staff. If I resign by for teachers the 31st of May for uh, non-teaching staff before the start of the summer holidays, if I resign by that date, do I get paid For the summer holidays?
1: Yes. In short, teachers who resign before the 31st of May are eligible for pay until the end of August, according to the Burgundy Book. But, and this is where it applies more broadly, it's important to be clear when writing a resignation letter that you put in specific dates to ensure that there are no misunderstandings. Don't just put in that you're going to resign at the end of term be specific. We know that teaching assistants are increasingly uh, paid on term time only contracts where they work for the 39 weeks of term time and are paid an additional amount to cover the minimum 5.6 weeks holiday that they're entitled to. And therefore, if a TA is planning on moving schools in September, they must make clear that they remain an employee until the end of August to ensure that they do get August's salary payment. Yeah, so one of the things I often
0: say to members when I get this question is, in your letter of resignation don't just say that your resignation date is the 31st of August. Say, my last date of employment, therefore, will be, you know, so you're saying, you know, please accept this letter uh, as as my uh, notice of resignation. And as per my contract, therefore, my last date will be the 31st of August 2023, for example. And the other thing that's actually important here, especially for people working in schools, is it's really important not to have any gaps in employment, on your um, employment record. So even though it might be really easily um, explained, you know, I, I left that school in May, you know, in the May 2023 and started a new school in September and just didn't work for that period of time. Uh, because of uh, schools and bodies that work with children's commitment to safeguarding, it's important that they are aware of any gaps in your in your em- employment history. So it's just easy not to have any, you know. So if you're gonna leave one employee on the 31st of August and start your next on the 1st of September, ideal. I do have another question, Martin, before we move on to some other points here. What if your new job doesn't start until the 3rd of September?
1: Should you say your last date of employment is the 2nd of September? No, because under a teacher's contract, the Burgundy Book states that even if your work does not begin until the 3rd of September, your employment is deemed to have begun at the 1st of the month. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, So when are resignation dates for teachers then? Can you run through that again? So teachers must give a minimum of two months notice if they want to leave after Christmas or just after Easter, and they are supposed to give three months if they want to leave at summer. In practice, this is often interpreted to mean that they must give notice by the half term if they want to leave at the end of term. And for those in leadership positions, they have to give a little bit longer. But the full terms of that can be found in the Burgundy book. Yes, yeah, so as we've already said, it's,
0: it's really important to be clear about the actual date of resignation. You know, avoid terms like the end of term and vague things like Martin said earlier on, give specific dates. Use those phrases like last day in work will be or last day of employment will be. And I, I prefer that second one because just to clear up anything, you know, if your last day of work is a Friday, uh, but, you know, you're employed till the bank holiday Monday, for example, it just avoids any any uh, any potential problems if you just say my last date of employment is. So, Martin, can you give more notice than is required by your contract? So if your contract
1: says you need to give four weeks notice, can you give six? Yeah, of course you can. Of course, there are reasons why you might not want to and there is no obligation for you to do so. Uh, But you can give as much notice as as you wish, um, as long as and it comes back to what we've just been saying, as long as you are clear about the dates. And it's also important to note that if you do give more notice, you may be required to use some of your uh, outstanding holiday as part of that notice period, particularly if you work in a nursery or uh, a, a system outside of schools. We have been asked before, uh, actually, on this, when uh, when a
0: member has given more notice than uh, was necessary, they've then been asked by the school if they'll leave sooner. But you don't have to do. You? It's entirely up to you. You've given the notice you've given the date of the last day of employment. That's entirely up to you at that point.
1: If your employer wants you to leave sooner, then that's a, a conversation that you can have, and you you may choose to agree to that, but you're under no obligation to do so. If you have submitted your resignation saying that you are going to leave, on 31st of August. You have every right to adhere to that. you have just touched on it, but what about holidays and holiday pay, or indeed time off in lieu that you've got um, accrued? So nursery staff, particularly, may be on all year round contracts rather than term time contracts. If you work all year round, you must give at least the minimum amount of notice as specified in your contract. And for most people, this will be around about four or five weeks. Again, as we've said, be very clear about the final working day. Also, make sure that you understand any holiday that you might have which you have not used and which you might be expected to use up, because that might mean that whilst your final day of employment is August the 31st, your final day in work, maybe sooner if you are using up any holiday entitlement. Now, those who work term time only, as we've said, are paid for 39 weeks plus an additional amount to cover the holiday entitlement of 5.6 weeks, which every full-time employee is entitled to. Therefore, if you're a TA and you're planning on moving schools in September, you must make it clear that you remain an employee until the end of August to get your August salary payment, even though there is no requirement for you to work during that summer shut down yeah and if you've accrued toil martin or got some overtime payments owed you do all that as well aren't you before you you do all of that time either as time or indeed as payment, but do check with your employer.
0: And I must say, I, I just said you need to have that paid to before you resign, which is not true. Before you leave, after you've resigned. So just, just to clarify, yeah, we well, just touched on um, the possibility, Martin, of uh, being asked to use up leave or toil for the, the last date of employment. Uh, what about gardening leave?
1: That, now that that's different from that, isn't it? It's very different, it's, and it's quite rare in education. In most places, you would be expected to work your notice period, and as part of that notice notice period, you may be expected to take any outstanding toil or to use up any outstanding holiday entitlement. But in some places you may be put on garden leave, which is where you are not expected to work your notice and are instead placed on leave for the duration. Now this is time when you remain an employee, but are not required to undertake any work. And in fact, you might not be allowed to go onto the work premises or have access to any of the electronic systems. Because you're still employed, you cannot start work for your new employer sooner. And it's a system which is commonly used by businesses to prevent staff from poaching customers when they leave. So like I said, it's very rare in education but sometimes it does
0: happen. if you do end up on gardening leave we highly recommend that you get that in writing so you can't be accused at any point of not having turned up uh, to work when you should have been in work and do give us a call as well so that we can give you some advice and make sure we support you through uh, that process other than that martin i think that's another myth busted excellent Okay,
1: uh, just remains for us to say uh, some of the usual things then, which are... We're going to be visiting schools uh, over the coming months. So do get in touch with your regional official and let us know if you want a visit. We would absolutely love to come and see you. Really, really important. Don't forget the upcoming
0: education conference in Liverpool in June. Emails have gone out to members. You can return a form expressing an interest. So book your place now, get back in touch with us and get your place on that
1: conference. And you can get in touch with us, of course, on any other issue as well. You can email the podcast on education policy at community-tu.org. You can follow us on social media and all those sort of things. So
0: for new shared content and resources, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram.
1: If you just search for Community Union, you should find us. And for help and advice, please visit our website, check out our FAQs, advice centre and information sheets. Or if you're a member and you need casework support, then do give us a ring. And once again, don't forget to
0: like, subscribe and tell everyone to join us on the Education Podcast.